we're back. It's been six months since my son Matthew was born. I am now back at work if you haven't turned on your TV. And I am trying to strike that work mom life balance, which is so tough. One constant headache that I'm constantly finding is sleep. Not mine, I'm not getting any, but baby Matthew's. So we wanted to bring back world-renowned pediatrician, Dr. Harvey Karp. He's the creator of the Snoo and also the Happiest Baby series. We had him on once before and you guys responded so favorably to him. So we wanted to bring him back and hopefully he can help me break down Matthew's sleep. And he's also warning me about the trials and tribulations of toddlerhood, which I thought I had a little bit of time before I got to that. He tells me it is right around the corner, so I better buckle up. From New York City, USA, welcome to the Fox 5 Podcast Network. Dr. Karp, when we first spoke, gosh, I cannot believe that it was already four months ago. Time, just when you have a baby, it just shoots, it just flies. I was in the midst of uh, what I was in the midst of what I would call newborn hell, the best hell. It was it was uh, amazing, and our life has been so enriched. But man, were we sleep deprived? It's hard. It's hard in the beginning, and and you didn't have family with you, right? Did you have family living with you? We didn't have family living with us, but my family's in New Jersey, so they came in as much as they could to help. We did have a baby nurse, mm-hmm. um, but I thought we only needed one for a short amount of time. And now sure. looking back, I realize that probably the best approach would have been having a family member actually stay with us long term. You know, I mean, that's the way it's supposed to be, right? Up until 100 years ago, you always had extended family helping you, not just come in one day a week, you know, but really being there, making the meals, helping to clean and wash so that you got babied as much as you're babying the baby. That's what motherhood was up until 175 years ago. Now everybody thinks they should be doing it on their own and you're a bad mother if you ever complain about it. That's what people think. And of course, that's not true at all. You're supposed, this is exactly in life when you're supposed to have help. Yeah, I I really didn't understand truly what sleep deprivation could do to Mm -hmm. you, how it really could affect your every movement. the way you think the, the everything really i mean full, i thought that i was tired before and then i had a baby and i was like oh my god this is what people were talking about i know it's funny when you think about it when you were a teenager and you wanted to stay up all night long right. you know, there was a time <laughs> but um but they use sleep deprivation to train navy seals to endure torture sleep deprivation and the sound of crying babies. That's what they used to <laughs> train them for torture. So, I mean, it's very, very hard. It, yeah. And I mean, not everybody goes through the worst of that. And I mean, babies, in a, on average, new parents sleep about six hours a night, which doesn't sound so bad until you realize it's broken up in all sorts of little pieces. And that's when it starts to get harder and harder. And of course, oftentimes you're exhausted at the end of you know, pregnancy anyway, because you're yeah. not sleeping that well the last month. So, and if you're one of the... One of the uh, families that's got a baby who's only sleeping, you know, three or four hours at night, then it really becomes a challenge. And, and literally, it can make you go psychotic. I mean, it, it leads to depression, anxiety, marital stress, car accidents. Um, you bring the baby in bed with you and you fall asleep. You're so tired and that causes even deaths can happen that way. Breastfeeding failure. So it really has a big impact. Yeah, it absolutely does. And then once the baby starts to sleep again, my goodness, it's like somebody turned the lights on. Mm-hmm. It really feels incredible because yeah. you feel like you start to slowly get a piece of yourself back. And you actually see, at least in my experience, the baby is happier. You bet. 
the baby changes for right. the better once they start to learn really how to sleep. Sleep helps everybody, right? It helps your mood, right? It helps a baby's mood as well. And it helps their metabolism. We have studies now that show that babies who sleep better are less likely to have obesity and overweight at one and two years of age. They have fewer uh, incidents of learning problems or um, attention deficit issues. So sleep is super important for the developing brain. And of course, you can be a better mom, right? You can be a better dad. When you're getting rest, you're not running on empty all the time. One of the things that turned uh, that turned our situation around, and this is not sponsored, nor did I get this for free, was the snoo. After I spoke to you, mm -hmm. I said to myself, there's gotta be something to this machine, this piece of technology. So as you suggested when we first talked, you said, listen, this is an expensive piece of technology but a lot of people do end up reselling them or gifting them to friends. Try it, see mm -hmm. if it works. And lo and behold, somebody I know says, I'm getting rid of mine. I said, my baby at this point is 10, 11 weeks. I've, I've, I, this ship has sailed for the snoo. Mm -hmm. And they said, just give it a shot. So I did. And I, honest to goodness, things started to turn around. Oh, fantastic. And what happened for us was, of all the technology, if our, if our listeners aren't familiar with this new, it's a piece of technology that you developed mm -hmm. that incorporates the five S's. It's in one exactly. one bassinet. It's almost like putting the baby back inside the womb with giving them motion. You know how people say, drive your baby around in the car? Mm -hmm. Well, that's the motion and sound that puts all of us to sleep, like falling asleep in an in a airplane or a train. But babies have that 24-7 in the womb, and they need that for the first four or five or six months of life. They all sleep better that way, so why would you take it away from them? Yeah, and we thought that we were giving our child, mm -hmm. Matthew, that. We thought that we were, because we were shushing. We, he was on his side. We gave him something to mm -hmm. suck. We attempted, as best we could, to implement the five S's almost to a T. Mm -hmm. But then when we put him in the snoo, what we found was the most important thing for him was the rocking. There you go. Yeah. And we were rocking him in our arms, but it's a little different to put him in a bassinet and allow it to go. And then we actually activated the weaning feature as well. Mm -hmm. So it worked really well for us. I didn't realize, though, how important motion was. Yeah, well, every baby's different. So Matthew was more sensitive to motion. Some babies more sensitive to sound, some the swaddling. Some need the whole ball of wax to really calm down. But the thing is, in the womb, the sound is louder than a vacuum cleaner, 24-7. It's a kind of sound of the blood flow. And then they're constantly held. And they're, every time you breathe, you're rocking your baby inside. So how weird. And they're never on their backs while they're inside the womb. Right. Suddenly, we put them on the back. We take away the sound. We take away the motion. And we think, well, that's the best way to sleep because we like to sleep that way. But for babies, it's totally weird. And what happens is that they wake up more often, they startle themselves awake. Then you're a tired parent, you bring the baby in bed with you. And now there are thousands of babies every year dying in bed with their parents mm -hmm. because they're tired parents. You know, when you're that tired, you're the equivalent of drunk. That's why you get it, in car it accidents. It feels that way. Yeah. For those people who haven't yet had a baby or maybe are past this, like that's how I felt. Sure. I oftentimes thought to myself, I know I can take care of this child, but gosh, I don't think I have all my faculties. I, right. I mean, I'm, I'm really not past the point of exhaustion. Mm -hmm. So that drunk analogy is perfectly fitting. Yeah, no, it's exactly right. And that's why bed sharing becomes so problematic because, look, you'd never share your bed with your baby if you were drunk, obviously. No, no it's almost not. insulting to even say that. But when you are sleep deprived, you're the equivalent of drunk. That's why there is many car accidents caused by sleep deprivation as by, you know, being drunk. 
So, but the the real thing is, and this was kind of the point I was trying to make in the beginning, you're supposed to have help. No one's supposed to do this on their own. And, um, And even when your family is helping you, it's rare that you have help all night long. But imagine if your sister moved in and said, listen, Teresa, I'm going to hold, rock, and shush the baby all night long, and I'll get you if the baby's hungry. And in essence, that's with this, it's technology, but actually it's the oldest kind of technology. It's just rocking and shushing babies. And by doing that, we're able to increase a baby's sleep an hour at least in the very beginning. And usually by two or three months, we're getting babies to sleep seven, eight, nine hours straight. That's very common. And most importantly, the the bed has a special swaddle and that's a, a wrapping blanket that attaches to the bed so that once the baby's in the bed the baby can't roll over so you can get the benefits of swaddling for four or five months and not worry about the baby going into a, a bad a bad you know position that was actually the thing that caused my husband to say let's actually let's do it it mm-hmm. was the sa- safety aspect of it and maybe you don't realize it if you don't have this device that clips in but what it is is on the side of the swaddle there are uh, two little almost they look like rings and you slide them onto mm-hmm. a piece that locks them in completely the baby cannot flip over right the baby can lift its legs the baby can lift its arms the baby's not strong enough obviously to sit up mm-hmm. and even still it, it, it's really around the chest area so that would right. be kind of difficult but they can't flip and i thought that maybe in the beginning i thought did I, was, I, am I, was I sleeping a little better knowing that at least he was safe? Sure. And then maybe did that carry into him sleeping more and then sort of the cycle continued. But it really does give you a peace of mind to know that your baby's sort of locked in place. Right. And, and secured, I would say, because they can move. They move their legs. They move their head. They just can't flip themselves. Mm-hmm. So that that for the first time, it's the only bed really that keeps babies on the back, which is recommended by the American Academy of Pediatrics. And that's especially important today because now we realize that we don't want babies swaddled and rolling over on their stomachs because that's a bigger risk for babies. So it drives you kind of crazy because at two months, mothers are now told to stop swaddling babies. But that's exactly when they start rolling over and startling themselves. And so what's happening is people are stopping swaddling. The babies are waking up more. They're brought into bed more. And that becomes a new risk. So for the first time, we can swaddle them, give them all the benefits of that, and prevent them from accidentally rolling over. I'm curious. Can you tell me a little bit about the future of the SNU? Um, So right now, it is a product that's available on Mm -hmm. your website. And... It, it comes at a premium. There's no question about it. Well, you not want to say something about that because it's $1,160 full. I mean, we have sales from time to time, but 1160 is a lot of money for a baby bed. But this is not a baby bed. I mean, of course it is. It's. A, I mean, it's in three museums. It's such a beautiful design. It's a white, the most sophisticated white noise machine. It's the safest swing. It's hours more sleep. It's peace of mind. Your baby can't roll over. And 24-7 for the first six months, it's your own personal helper. So that turns out to be about $6 a day. And if you use it with your second child or you sell it when you're done, it's like 2 to $3 a day, which is kind of what you're spending on coffee or Red Bull just to stay awake with your baby. So I, I actually think that it's really the best value of anything you can buy for your baby. But when you were developing it, were you concerned? <clears throat> when you were developing it, were you concerned about putting that kind of price tag on it? The, the baby industry is such a massive industry. And let's face it, moms and dads spend a lot of money on things that they use for a month mm-hmm. and they toss aside or that break. I mean, I have so much stuff that I'm like, that's $1,000 right there, $2,000 right there. And what did I need that for? But somebody told me that it was the best and I needed to buy it. But still, when you were developing this product, were you concerned about placing that price tag on it? Or did you 
really inherently believe in the value of it and you knew that moms and dads would attach themselves to it as well? Yeah, it's a great question. So two things. Number one, it's very expensive to make. And so it has to have a price point for us to be able to be in business um, for right now, although we're bringing the price down. But number two, when we were testing it out, we tested hundreds of families. And when we gave them the bed, we asked them, what would you spend more for a baby bed that rocked your baby and shushed your baby? And they said, I don't know, an extra $100, $200. These were students, mostly, that we were testing it on. Those parents were students. When we went to take the bed back a month later, they said, I'll give you $5,000. Do not take the bed. We need this, you know? <laughs> Please. So we, yeah, we knew that we had something that was really of value. And ultimately, our goal is not to sell these expensive beds. Our goal is to help as many families as possible. In fact, we're doing research in a dozen universities now to show that we can use this bed by improving sleep. We can reduce postpartum depression, even prevent postpartum depression. That's Because what we're there's studying. an inherent link there between the crying and sleeping and lack of sleep with the baby exactly. and how it affects not only women, but men. That's exactly right. And anyone gets depressed when you're not sleeping, but you're especially prone to that when you, when you have a new baby. It also reduces crying, which pushes you into postpartum depression. It also gives you the sense that you have support. It's not only on your shoulders, which also is associated with depression. So there are many reasons why we're already seeing some fantastic results in, in benefiting women with severe depression. We want to prevent depression even before it happens, but we're also using it for babies withdrawing from drugs, which is a need. They have a need for extra motion and sound. We're also doing studies using it in the hospital. I was going to ask you about that because I know that that's something that's being implemented even here in New York City. Well, not yet. We want to implement it in New York City. We're just about to start studies in Detroit and San Diego because right now what happens is that when you have your baby, and you probably had this experience, you're encouraged to do skin-to-skin -skin and breastfeeding and keeping your baby in the room with you. Mm -hmm. We call it rooming in, which is a wonderful thing to encourage breastfeeding. Great ideas. The only problem is that when you put the baby down in the little bassinet next to you, the babies tend to you know, fuss and stir because they're hungry that first day or two. They're not getting much milk. It's a yet. whole new world, literally. And it's a new world and they don't have the environment around them. So they fuss and your natural instinct is to bring the baby in bed with you. And what happens is you accidentally fall asleep with the baby in bed with you in the hospital. And now there have been several deaths reported. Babies are falling out of beds. They've had skull fractures and other mm. injuries. So we want to be able to support moms in the hospital with a caring bed that actually responds to the baby, that helps to soothe the baby, and almost acts like an assistant nurse, if you will, in the room with the parent. So the mom can be doing all the great stuff, but she does get a break. And so, um, so those are the many ways that we're looking to use the bed to help families with the ultimate goal of getting insurance companies to subsidize this, to pay for it the way they do um, breast, breast pumps. pumps. Exactly. I know that some uh, big tech companies, and the reason I know this is because talking to other moms that live downtown, they were saying to me that there are some big tech companies like Google and others that are either starting to work with you and your company or um, are thinking about it, or, or there's some, going to be some sort of synergy where the SNU is available to moms in some sort of program because they believe so strongly in this piece of technology. Because it's, again, not just a bassinet. It's a beautiful piece of furniture, but it is at the end of the day, a piece of technology. Right. It uses technology as well as old-fashioned, you know, swaddling is like the oldest thing, the least technological kind of a thing you do with a baby. So it's a mix of ancient and modern. It's really kind of weaving together the best of the past with the best of the present. And uh, yeah, we're super proud that a bunch of, of companies now are providing rental beds 
for their employees. So Google is one, um, uh, Activision Blizzard is doing it, Qualcomm, Hulu. We just signed up News Corp here in New York City, and I mean, it's a broad uh, international company. Uh, many, many others that are doing that. And you know what, it's smart business because it helps to, you know, to retain employees if they're well rested, they're more productive, but it also reduces errors and accidents and reduces healthcare costs. So of all the benefits that you can give your employee, this is one that actually has a return on investment for the company itself. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one of the reasons why we transitioned out of the SNU and we did it when Matthew, okay, so he's six months now, six months this week. So we did it about three weeks ago, four mm -hmm. weeks ago. Um, and the reason why we did it was because number one, he was getting a little big for it. Mm -hmm. He was still, he's a little bit of a shrimp. So he was, he was still able to fit, mm -hmm. but he, but they, they grow out of it. They, they age out and they grow out of it at a certain weight and length. And he's, t he's longer than he is heavy. But one of the reasons why we were like, okay, it's time, is that he was starting to try to roll over. And um, we found that he was doing those dolphin or those mermaid kicks yes, uh -huh. on the snoo. And when we, we are in a one-bedroom apartment, we're not one of those people that has lots and lots of space. So mm -hmm. he's right there in front of us. And we were hearing those kicks. And I thought, okay, this kid is attempting to self-soothe, A. Mm -hmm. And then B, he's trying to roll over on the ground. And our pediatrician said to us, if you unlock him, you might find that he'll f flip over because he wants to practice his skill at night. Sure. And I said, well, how do I do that? I have him locked in in the snoo. He says, eventually you're going to have to transition him with the to another crib. Right. So my question to you is, we just decided to make that switch because we thought, well, the advice that we're being given says, do it. Do mm -hmm. it now. What do you recommend for parents who are concerned that their baby obviously is not able to turn over because they're locked in? Because mm -hmm. obviously rolling over is a developmental skill. So how do you combat that? Do you just transition? Is that the easiest way? Well, of course, number one, all day long, the baby has an opportunity to practice rolling over when they're not asleep. So you do tummy time, you do exercises, you know, baby yoga with your baby massages and all that kind of stuff. So they have plenty of opportunity for their gross motor development. Um, at nighttime, what happens is that uh, some people worry, oh my gosh, you're using sound, you're using motion, isn't the baby going to get dependent on it? And then you're not going to be able to get them out of it. Um, that's a worry a lot of people have. And actually, it's exactly the opposite. This is one of the most amazing things because in the womb, babies have sound and motion. So to put them cold turkey in a bed that doesn't have that is actually kind of cruel and, and ultimately counterproductive. It's not that they can't sleep. I mean, some kids sleep fine in that position and, and in a bed that doesn't move, but many kids sleep better with motion and sound, which is kind of what parents have known for a thousand years, right? You hold and rock a baby, that's what mm -hmm. they love. Um, and so um, what happens is that once they get to be three months, four months, five months, they're in such a great pattern of sleep. They just anticipate being good sleepers that you've sleep trained them without having to do cry it out. You've naturally sleep trained them with the cues that they had in the womb. Um, and so by the time they get to five or six months, they're neurologically mature and they don't need the motion anymore. They still need sound. And I recommend sound for at least a year or two or three um, because that it's almost like you and your pillow. It's just a soothing way that babies can um, help to kind of give in to sleep. But they don't need motion and swaddling anymore by five, six months of age. And so that's why we have a weaning feature that you mentioned it, which gives the baby sound but stops the motion unless the baby fusses if the baby fusses the motion starts and then it'll gradually stop again once the baby calms down and usually by five six months you do that for a week or so and the baby just is ready for a crib it really is kind of a painless situation we we transitioned 
quite seamlessly. Um, Matthew didn't need. I mean, he, he we went arms out first in mm-hmm. the in the snoo because on your website you have a way to to do it so that it's safe for the baby to have arms out, and then we um, eventually put him. Once we got him out of the snoo, we put him in a sleep, a sort of like a sleep blanket, I guess mm-hmm. is what they call it. We were able to do that. And he, we still have white noise going so that we have the noise. And we used the weaning feature and he didn't need it. Was he was it. fine. Yeah. Um, and now he loves being in his crib and he, he kind of moves around to every corner that he wants. And he, he fi- we find him in all strange shapes and such in every corner of the crib but it works for him and he is able to go to sleep and that's the way it is for the vast majority of of kids and it's funny you think it's not going to happen because they're going to get so used to it but you know it's interesting you feed your baby milk just milk 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 every meal for the first five six months no one's really worried that the baby's never going to eat food right you just know at the right time when you introduce food your baby's going to do well with that it's the same thing with sleep once they're in a good pattern of sleep that tends to perpetuate itself and like i said we very rarely have to do any any you know cry it out sleep training we actually did sleep train though and Mm -hmm. the reason why we did is because we have a crier on our hands Mm -hmm. more often not more often than not that's not a right way to say it but there were a lot of times where Matthew outcried the snoo. The snoo mm-hmm. told me that it needed care, and I'm sitting there going, I know he does. I can hear him in the next room, but he's a loud one. Mm-hmm. And so he would cry, and at some point, uh, the snoo stops right. everything except for, I think it actually does keep the, the sound No, it'll down. stop everything. It'll stop the, the motion and the sound. Because he just decided that he didn't want to be there for whatever reason. Right. Um, and, that, and that happened as he got older. So like month four or so, he was a little angry to be in there, and he said, I don't want to sleep. So the interesting thing is that, of course, every baby is unique and different. And um, um, what we do see with children is that um, if they're hungry, if they're nosy, if they want to cuddle, the bed is not going to put them. It's not like you put them in and they sleep eight hours. It's not a magic bed. When, but probably by two, three months of age, 80 percent of the time, the baby's fussing will be calmed by the bed. 20 percent of the time it won't. And they need to come out for a hug or a feeding. Um, but one of the interesting things we see is that when they go through three and four months, there's a sleep regression mm-hmm. where they're actually, what's going on is they're getting nosy. They want social exposure. They don't want to be by themselves. They want, Hey, you with the long hair, come back here. Mm-hmm. You know, they want that entertainment. Right. And so with snoo, and I don't know if you tried this, but you can change the levels of the bed so you can increase the motion and the sound. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like you're driving on a bumpy road and some babies need that, especially when they're going through a sleep regression. So the, the app with, that comes with the, with the bed, um, you're, you're able to modify the sound and the motion so that you can meet your baby's needs. And those needs change over time. So it's not like just, I mean, we built it so that you can push the button and the bed just does the rest. But for probably 20 or 30% of the kids, you're going to modify the settings because they need a little bit more, a little bit less of this or that. Yeah, we needed to. We put it on sensitive. Uh-huh. Um, but as I mentioned, and sort of moving away from the snoo and into a little bit more sleep and behavioral questions, we did end up sleep training. And we did that because he wasn't connecting his sleep cycles during the day. We mm-hmm. found that a lot of times the motion of the snoo did carry him over into the next sleep cycle. And other times he'd wake up after 30 minutes mm-hmm. and we're thinking, what's going on? Why don't you sleep? Why won't sure. you sleep? So what we ended up finding is we used the Ferber method. Mm-hmm. And some people are all about cry it out and the Mark Weisblue theories and mm-hmm. other people say, heck no, I'm not letting my kid cry for even a second. Mm-hmm. We found a common ground. And for us, it took 
really, it was like one or two days that were a little rough. Mm-hmm. And we did it while he was in the snow. Mm-hmm. One or two days, a little rough. And then by we did started on a Monday. And by Wednesday, we saw drastic improvements. And the we had the weaning feature on. And so he really only needed a little bit of motion Perfect. here and there. It worked mm-hmm. really well for us. But what we're struggling with at this point at six months is Matthew's getting a fantastic chunk of sleep overnight. We're looking at 12 to 14 hours straight. Wow. Which wow. people tell me. Is, I know. Don't tell your friends. I know. <laughs> I, we went to the pediatrician today and he looked at me and said, I'm sorry, excuse me, what? Mm-hmm. I said, yeah, we sleep trained him and it worked. Uh-huh. He said, uh, in a stretch? I said, mm-hmm. yes, one, one whole stretch. Um, but he's not sleeping a lot during the day now. And my husband and I, and like a lot of parents, have been obsessed with attempting to get him to nap. Mm-hmm. And the one thing that my pediatrician said to me today was, you don't need to obsess about it. If he's getting 12 hours straight or 13 or 14 hours straight, he's getting his sleep at night. Right. What do you do, though? We still are obsessed with naps. What do you do if you have a baby who won't settle down during the day or even complete a sleep cycle like Matthew often does not. Right. Well, so the average sleep for a six-month-old is about 13 hours. So 13, 14 hours, he is getting his the needed amount of sleep. Um, and um, so it's not surprising that he's curious. He knows he's interested in the world. He's social. He doesn't want to go down for it. Still, it's all day long. It's a long time for a six-month-old to be able to sustain their attention. So you would want to try. You may not succeed, but you want to try. And so the thing that works the best is kind of taking them away from the, the stimulating world. Um, and that means darkening the room if you can, using the white noise. And it's kind of loud, white noise. I mean, it's about as loud as a shower. It's louder than you would think you would use it. But that helps them not pay attention to the things outside in the world and also to the things inside their body. So if they have a little gas or, they, or they're you know, a little bit hungry, the white noise helps to cover that over so they're not so sensitive to those internal um, experiences. Um, and usually you try to put him down after good feeding. This is one of the things that people get confused about. Some people are told, feed the baby, play, and then put the baby down to sleep. But, you know, when you eat a big meal, that's when you get tired. Babies fall asleep when they're feeding. Mm. And so actually it makes much more sense to, to feed your baby and put your baby down right after a feeding because that's the natural time they want to sleep. We usually do eat, play, sleep. Yeah. But we did that. And that's just, again, as you were saying, that's what we do with Matthew because we were told don't associate food and sleep because you, then you have a sleep association that is going to be very tough to break. That He's going to think he needs to eat to go to sleep. And you might have, that might be true in the first month or two. You're beyond that now. So now he's got this solid type of sleep um, at nighttime. And so he's doing his job, and that's not going to suddenly change. I mean, it, sleep comes and goes. You know, they get a cold, you travel. Things, things can change a little bit. But it's not like in that first month where they're learning the patterns. He's already learned his pattern, so you don't need to worry about that at this point. And with Snoo, we don't do the eat, play, sleep business because Snoo is building the sleep association. Mm-hmm. So you can just do feeding and then put him right in bed, and, and that's the way it works the best. In fact, that's how mothers have done baby sleep forever, because they just fall asleep while they're in your arms. Yeah, and I saw that with my baby as well. He would fall asleep, and I'd try to wake him up while he was eating. And I'm like, mm-hmm. wait, we didn't finish the feed. Yeah. The, the book says you have to finish the feed. You get obsessed with all these sure. theories and things that at the end of the day, at least for me, once I started to throw them out the window, I actually felt much more competent. Mm-hmm. So I said, oh, I'm just going to forget about all this stuff. I'm going to and- follow my baby. Yes. Yeah. And what I didn't realize is that babies actually do tell you what they need, if you listen. Mm-hmm. They do. They do. Sure, but that takes confidence, right? And you know what's interesting 
is that most people are having their babies today. They haven't had a lot of baby experience. In the past, you would have taken care of 10 babies, your siblings, your cousins, before you have your own baby. You just kind of would learn it. And today, so many people are taking care of babies that have very little experience. So naturally, they're nervous and they're relying on the information that they read or that they hear from their friends. And, um, and what you're saying is so true is that once you get to know your baby and you pay attention to your baby, your baby will tell you a lot about what they need. And for all those first-time moms, especially those that are just wading in these waters, one thing I can say unequivocally is that in the beginning, those screams are piercing. Mm-hmm. You don't know piercing if it, your heart. Yes, yeah. your heart, your mind, your everything. You don't know, and you don't know if it's hunger or tired or what's up or mm-hmm. gas. But I have found comfort in knowing that over time, over the last half year now, that I know what the scream means. Mm-hmm. I know if it's hunger. I know if it's tired. So I can respond accordingly. You bet. And your defenses come down. You bet. Yeah, but you don't know that in the first month or two, right? In the or first the month first or three two, months. or three months. The first three months, this crying is kind of like a smoke alarm. Right. You don't know when the alarm goes off. Did you burn toast or is the whole house on fire? Because it makes the same sound. And babies are very much like that. They're crying. It's very hard to interpret on the basis of the sound of the cry itself. Some babies you can. They're just kind of moan and whimper a little bit before they get, you know, all the way up to uh, a loud cry. And you can kind of get a sense if your baby's just hungry or if they're really in pain, then there might be zero to 60. But most babies, once they're crying, it's really hard to tell the difference from one to the other. Actually, I have a question for you. In terms of nursing, Mm -hmm. Matthew, what were you told? Were you told to switch from one side to the other? How long did you keep him on one side before you switch? What, what were you taught? I got a lot of conflicting advice. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the hospital, they said, keep the baby on as long as the baby wants to be on. And I was mm-hmm. lucky that Matthew latched right away. So I literally, for the first, I would say probably week and a half, it was just 45 minutes at a clip. But what was unique for me was that Matthew um, was born 715. And by the time we got to the first doctor's appointment, he had dropped a pound. So they said, immediately, right. you have to start supplementing. I now know from talking to friends and other people that maybe I didn't need to start supplementing. Mm-hmm. Maybe I just needed to give a little time and relax. But the advice was to supplement. As soon as we put a bottle in his mouth, he quit breastfeeding for oh. one whole week. Wow. He would not. You brought mm-hmm. him near me and he would scream mm-hmm. as if I was harming him. And I wasn't, or at least mm-hmm. not trying to, right? Mm-hmm. Um, once he picked back up again, which happened at about day eight, that delayed my milk coming in. And so I tried to sort of reset the clock. And I would not keep him on me for longer than about a half hour at a clip. But the advice that from that point on that I was given was about 15 minutes, switch to the next side 15 minutes. If you feel like he's, if you think it's still productive, you can go to 20 and 20. But once you get to about 40, 45 minutes, you're you're tiring yourself yeah. out. The baby is tired from doing the work. You bet. And you're, there's nothing left there. Mm-hmm. So give it up and move on. Right. Um, and that was really good advice for me to finally follow because when I was doing 45 minutes at a clip, I was exhausted. I felt I was falling asleep. Sure. Especially in the middle of the night. And I was thinking, how am I going to stay awake to do this <laughs> seven more times today? So, so totally agree with what you're saying, except I would even change it a little bit more, which is that if you understand, so this is how the breasts work. The breasts are making milk a drop every second. And that milk then collects in a little collecting system under the areola. In the first weeks of life, you might collect like an ounce and a half or even two ounces in both sides. And then that increases to three ounces and then four ounces on both sides um, as your baby gets older. So your baby suckles at the breast. First, they're just sucking. Nothing's really happening. Then you get what's called the letdown. Mm -hmm. And sometimes the milk even spurts out of your breast. It can spray out. And you hear your baby starting to gulp. 
Then after five, six, seven minutes, that gulping slows down. Mm. Most of the collecting system has been emptied. The baby is still getting milk a drop at a time, but that side is pretty much empty. The other side on the other end is ready to go. It's filled. And so if you switch after that six, seven minute period and put him on the other side, then he can get all that easy milk. And you can either then keep him on that side for you know another 10 minutes or so, or switch him back to the first side. Because that way your feeding will end up being a 20 minute feeding or 25 minute feeding total. They'll get more milk. The more milk they get during the day, the better they sleep at night. And it won't be tiring you out so much because so often when the baby's on one side and they're going 20 minutes, like you said, they get tired and they didn't it's even a workout for stomach. them. It is. They get sweaty even mm-hmm. when they're sucking. So, so going back and forth a little bit more often is a more efficient feeding. And the better they eat during the day, it really helps them to sleep at night. Yeah, full bellies. Mm-hmm. I mean, that that's what it comes down to. You know, I, I didn't find that the myth was true that a breastfed baby is not as good of a sleeper as a formula-fed baby. I also didn't find that when we started him on solids that he automatically slept better. Sure. I, I didn't find a lot of those things to be true. Some other moms anecdotally tell me that for them it works. Yeah, there's so many myths about this stuff. There have been a couple of studies about giving babies rice cereal because you think it's going to be thicker and sick. But honestly, you're, it's rice starch. Compared to breast milk, which has got fat and proteins and carbohydrates, breast milk is much more filling than any rice cereal. So the studies show that giving a few spoons of rice cereal don't do anything. If you're going to give food to try to help your baby have more calories, you want to use something like avocado Mm -hmm. or mix a little, you know, oil or butter into, you know, some yellow vegetables or something. There's some fat there. Um, But... um, what was the other, um, there was the other uh, myth that you were saying? That formula-fed babies Yeah, yeah, so the studies really Bottle show. Bottle-fed, right? Yeah, the f- studies really show that the formula feeding doesn't make them sleep longer. It, they do seem to sleep a little longer at a, at a cycle, but ultimately they don't have more sleep at night. Um, but it doesn't mean that the breastfed mother gets more sleep. Mm-hmm. Or, I mean, what happens with breastfeeding is they're waking up a lot more. Yeah. And so even if you're getting six, six and a half hours of sleep, it's kind of broken up into little pieces. Yeah. And as I said, that that grates on you very quickly. Yeah. Uh, tell me um, your thoughts on sleep and how it affects a baby's behavior. The reason I ask this is because we have been so obsessed with sleep in my household. Um, and we are now confident that he's getting an appropriate amount of sleep at night. My husband and I keep saying, but wait, if he doesn't get sleep during the day, could this affect him developmentally or cognitively? You hear all these things and they're because babies and pregnancy and postpartum is such a massive industry. There's so much information out there that you can really drive yourself crazy just looking at all the different studies. Mm-hmm. Everybody has a different opinion and they've published it in some sort of journal somewhere sure so in terms of the association between behavior and sleep especially as a child gets older a year a year and a half two years where is the connection there is there any connection well there are some studies that show if a child is getting under 10 hours of sleep a day that that's more correlated with problems later on what we don't know was the child different and that's why they were only getting 10 hours or did the amount of sleep lead to a problem? We don't really know the answer to that. But in general, with a child like Matthew sleeping 13, 14 hours, that's that's great. And so I would think that there's no issue with um, no, no worry or concern that he's not sleeping during the day. 
other than the fact that he might get more cranky. It, he might run out of gas at a certain point, mm-hmm. and he just... The, what happens sometimes, you would think that if you keep a child up longer, they're going to sleep better. But sometimes if you keep them up longer, their sleep just kind of deteriorates. They, they, you've missed your opportunity. So what happens? They have some sort of cortisol spike? Is that, does that, at some point, does that phase out? We, you know, we don't know um, about the hormonal changes. Really what's going on is an adrenaline thing or, or just they're, they're socially excited and that's what's keeping them awake. So yes, it does get better over time. I mean, the naps get organized and the nighttime sleep gets organized and all of that is part of the kind of the development of the brain as the brain gets more mature. Um, so that's a normal part of the process. Some kids do it earlier. I mean, some kids are great sleepers even at six weeks or eight weeks and other kids it takes you know six months to 12 months for them to to get better what we're seeing with snoo is that we're moving children in the right direction mm-hmm. um and we're able to um to help earlier help them get that extended amount of sleep which which seems to help them and certainly helps the parents are there that you know of and again it's okay if you do not but are there any uh long-term effects on doing cry it out or Ferber method or any of those are there any is there any correlation there because yes we did let him cry he didn't cry for more than 20 minutes at a clip we were lucky in that regard I think he really wanted to sleep and we were like do it Mm -hmm. (laughs) but but we are concerned that long-term maybe we might have rewired some things upstairs and perhaps affected him in some way yeah I know that's really the worry right I mean and people you hear all sorts of conflicting information about that but um and 20 minutes of crying is actually not a lot with Ferber method or the cried out routine. Babies can go an hour, hour and a half and then and vomit and then they drop from exhaustion. I mean, it can be really, really tough. Number one, you want to make sure you're doing it correctly. So there are ways of doing the, the, the cried out routine that will make it more likely that you're going to succeed in ways that make it less likely and actually perpetuate the crying accidentally. So for example, if you're constantly going to the bedside and patting and talking to your baby, you're giving a mixed message, right? Mm-hmm. Like, um, mommy's right here. Well, then pick me up already, you mm-hmm. know, and, and the child feels that the crying has brought you this close. Maybe if I cry more, you'll pick me up and I'll get the thing I want. So when you do it, you have to kind of decide that you're just going to look in. I love you. Go to sleep and close the door and not accidentally give too much of a of positive attention to the child but anyway there have been a bunch of studies that show that it raises a parent's cortisol level um, <laughs> but actually the children um, deal with that it is a stress no question about it but they deal with it quite well and um, usually the crying will go for well for two or three days um, we'll have the cry period and by the third day or the fourth day they're, they're not they don't have that crying anymore so that compared to all the hugging, kissing, loving, responding to him every time he cries, feeding him with every cry that he has, you know, all of that is much more of a positive reinforcement that you love him, you care for him, and he's secure, and he can be trusting than those couple of tough nights for him. So I wouldn't worry at all that you did something that was, you know, undermining of his confidence. Oh, good. Yeah. Because I don't want to screw up this no, kid. No, of course. I just, we, he just arrived. I don't want to mess it up too much. But I'll tell you, you know, the time... We worry a lot about this, especially when you're a new parent. I, most new mothers and fathers, I mean, they're buying five books, 10 books about babies, purees and sleep training, all this kind of stuff, and never buy another book the rest of their child's life, as if there's nothing else to learn. <laughs> you know so what I mean? That's so true. <laughs> well, it turns out that you'll get through those first six months. One way or another, you're going to get through it. It's going to, you know, you might be sleep deprived or you're getting sleep, whatever. But between eight months and five years of age is critical. That You've created a person 
between eight months and five years of age. So the time that's most important to learn how to be a good parent and learn the tricks and techniques that the best you know, preschool teachers know and pediatricians know, that's what you really want to learn at seven, eight, nine months. So you can start incorporating those techniques in being a good communicator. And it isn't just, number one, toddlers are not two and three-year-olds. I mean, they are, but toddlerhood starts at eight or nine months. Oh, don't tell me that. I, You're almost uh, there. I'm on the brink of toddlerhood. You're knocking at the door. <laughs> you are. And that's fun and exciting because now he's going to be much more of a member of the family. He can read... Saying mommy is sad to a child will take him till he's three to understand it. But a nine-month-old can read that sadness on your face mm. or the happiness on your face. They have very highly developed part of the brain that is emotionally resonant. And so emotional health, which is the most important thing for all of us to be healthy, even physical health depends on emotional health and emotional resilience. That's something that you can and you want to learn about and start teaching your child even at eight, nine, ten months of age. So what can I do? So I'm, so I'm on the brink of this. I'm the, I'm the perfect example here. What do I do or what can I do? How do I speak to the baby? How, how do I communicate with him so that it does foster um, a healthy future? So there are lots of resources. I mean, there are mommy and me groups, for example, that you can go to. A lot of um, community centers have that, for example. Of course, you can read books. Um, there are a lot of books about toddlers. Uh, um, with, uh, you know, have, full disclosure, you know, I have, a, I have a book on the happiest toddler on the yeah. block, which teaches, a, my work is very, um, very technique driven. Mm -hmm. um, I'm an impatient person. I want to do things then I can see the benefit right away. And so uh, with the with babies and the five S's, there's the concept of babies need to be in the uterus for another three or four months. Not that I ever persuade a woman to try that but right. you know you are imitating the womb for those first four months with holding and rocking with toddlers the key concept is they're not so much little children as they are kind of your primitive little friends i mean they're kind of like neanderthals you know they a lot of parents would agree <laughs> <laughs> they spit and scratch and throw things at your head when they're upset and uh, most importantly it takes them a good five years to learn all of the parts of society that we would call civilization, you know, saying please and thank you, sharing their toys, waiting in line. And so that's important to understand that, number one, so you have appropriate expectations of your child, but also appropriate expectations of yourself. Because when your kid's flipping out at the supermarket and knocking everything off the shelf, it doesn't mean that you're a bad mom or you have an evil child. It means that, you know, maybe they're overtired or they're too hungry or this was not the right day to go shopping. You know, you have the appropriate expectations. But anyway, Happiest Toddler on the Block has a whole bunch of ways that parents can not just you can you can eliminate 50 to 75 percent of temper tantrums, which is valuable. But more importantly, you can take any child and help them be more patient, more cooperative, better able to communicate their feelings and ultimately be more emotionally resilient. And that's really a big part of your job as a, as a mom. Absolutely. And full disclosure, I didn't realize that that was something, I obviously know that you have to be a good role model for your child, but I didn't realize that you had to teach certain things, just like I didn't realize that you had to teach a baby how to sleep. I thought that they just mm -hmm. fall asleep. I really did. I, I know that there's a lot of work that goes into parenting, but I thought when the baby's tired, it just goes to sleep. And then you pick it up and you put it in the crib. Yeah. I didn't realize that you actually had to actively work to get it there. I know. And man. the same way that, as you're saying, with toddlers, I, I, until I had a baby, I didn't realize, even just at six months, that there are certain things that you really need to reinforce every single day in order to, get, like, for example, patience. Mm -hmm. my, my 
child does not have any patience. Now, maybe you could say he does. He shouldn't. Yeah, he's but little. one thing that I talk about all the time with my husband and family and his caretaker is we have to teach this child patience. I see how he is demanding food from people now that mm-hmm. we're feeding him salads. How do I teach him patience? How do you teach a little baby patience? Is that Can you do that? You can't. Well, not a little, little baby, but by six to nine months, you can start that. And actually, it's kind of interesting because the way people think they're supposed to teach patients is kind of the opposite way that works the best. So in other words, normally we say to a child, wait one second, honey, you just have to wait. You know, I do that every day. Yeah. Okay. Which is normal. And that's kind of a good communication. But there's a there's a trick to that or a finesse to that that works much better, which is when your child is is demanding something as a six month old, nine month old will do, you almost give it to them at the last second you don't but for a good reason so in other words you don't you say oh honey here's your cookie oh wait one second one second and you don't just hold the cookie in front of them you kind of turn your back a little bit as if you're doing something you know just for two or three seconds then you turn back to the child and you say good waiting honey here's your cookie that two three seconds they're learning oh when mom says wait a second then she turns around she's going to turn right back and then I'm going to get the thing I want. So it's not a big deal to wait. Mm. And then you stretch it to five seconds and then 10 seconds and then 15 seconds. And before you know it, your child is learning. You know, this waiting thing is not a big deal because usually when I wait, I get the thing I want. That's the best way to teach patients. And even a one-year-old can learn to be to wait, you know, 30 seconds or a minute. Wow. Yeah. And that's something that they'll carry with them, obviously. It is. And studies show, actually, that one of the things that's most associated with success later in life is the ability to be patient, the ability to delay your immediate gratification and just kind of wait and and kind of have that internal reserve. So it's actually a very important technique to or, or skill to, to train a child to have. One thing I hear from a lot of parents and friends that have toddlers is that it is an unknown, I mean, it's the Wild West especially when those meltdowns happen. Now, one of my friends, um, I'm sure a lot of them have read Happiest Toddler, but one reached out to me to talk to me about toddleries. And she Mm -hmm. said, I think my kid has outsmarted me. I don't know if I'm ready for the next book or (laughs) what's going on, but I swear it just when I start to do it, all of a sudden she said, I think my child feels like they're being patronized. Is that How old is the child? Um, I believe three years old, two and a half, Mm -hmm. three years old. And so she's like, what do I do? What's the next step? Mm-hmm. What do parents do if they, if they feel like their kid's on to them? So, so toddleries is a technique, a uh, way of speaking to children who are upset. Every day, well, number one, we don't speak to children, young children, in a normal voice. You don't say, did you enjoy your breakfast? You go, mmm, yummy, huh? That's good. You know, there's this sing-songy thing. It's called motherese or parentese where you have this different flow of language that young children respond to. Um, but when people are upset, you actually, there's a, a technique, toddlerese, where you use three different steps, short phrases, repetition, and mirroring about a third of their emotion in your tone of voice and your gestures. Now, when you think about it, it's kind of the way you talk to your friends or your family when they're upset. So when they're upset, you and they're upset with you you might say now wait a second let me explain what happened and just stop them in their tracks but most of the time if your friend is kind of talking to you about something that was upsetting you'll go she did what and then so what so i got to hear this so tell me next what happened next you encourage them by acknowledging it but you don't acknowledge it like a psychiatrist 
Oh, that's very interesting. Tell me more, right? Mm. You have a certain amount of emotion, a little bit of repetition in your voice. Um, and so with a young child, that's the same technique you use. So a one-year-old who wants the cookie and they're pointing ah, ah, that they want that cookie, you might go pointing to the cookie and going, ah, you, 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 you want, you want, you want that now. You say, my, my cookie. Now, some people go, well, that's baby talk. I wouldn't talk like that to a child. But the problem is when a child gets, when any of us get upset, we turn off our left brain. We're not logical. That's the adult part of the brain. We're not logical. We're not patient. We're not eloquent. We become, well, there's a term, right? We say people go ape. Yeah. They get so upset, they went ape. So a young child is kind of primitive to begin with. And when they get upset, they completely turn off that part of their brains. And so you need to repeat things for them to really understand that you get the message. Now, once they get to be two or three years old, a smart two-year-old or three-year-old, you can't go, ah, 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 because that is talking to them like they're little babies. I'm not a baby anymore, mom. Right. And so you still use repetition and short phrases, but it won't be as immature a type of language. So it might be like if he wants the toy and his brother's playing with it, you might say, you, you, you want that toy now? You don't want to wait. You don't want to wait. You want it now. And you're saying, give it to me. And you're reaching and grabbing it because you want that toy now. You just don't want to wait for it. And I get it. But you know, you remember we talked about taking turns. You do have to take turns. So what can we do now? You know, how, how should we give him a one minute turn or should we wait? Should we set the dinger? And when the dinger goes, you know, then you can start mm. making different, you know, kind of solutions for the problem. But pretty much but read with, their mind, essentially, not not in a way, not literally read their mind, but make the child believe that you are completely understanding what is happening inside their head. Right. Because they, you actually may have a wrong idea. They may say, no, 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 I'm not. I don't want it, but I'm afraid he's going to break it. And I like that toy. You know, they may correct you with what your thought was. Oh. So pretty much with any of your friends, you know, when they're upset, you're saying, oh, my God. So that must have been so embarrassing. And she said, embarrassing. It wasn't embarrassing, but I was so insulted by blah, blah, blah. You know, that's how we communicate. And you do the best you can to acknowledge feelings. But here's an interesting thing that parents are taught today when a child is upset to acknowledge their child's feelings which you kind of think means, honey, I know you're upset. I know you want that toy, but you do have to wait. Kind of loving and sweet and kind. But children have big emotions. And if your tone of voice is too kind of calm and still, there's too big a gap between how your child is feeling and how you're talking. Oh, okay. And that makes them feel like you don't get it. Like if you were really upset... And you said to me, oh, my God, I can't stand what just happened. And I said, that's very upsetting. Mm -hmm. And you'll say, not upsetting. It was driving me crazy. If there's too big of a gap, even if the words are right, it feels like you don't get it. And so the thing of it with young children is not just acknowledging feelings, but you have to do it in this toddlerese technique with repetition and about a third of their emotion, not all of their emotion, because then you're, you're competing with them for attention. But you do have to have some emotion in your voice. Otherwise, your child thinks you don't get it. And then they only have two choices. They either say it louder because they need you to understand it. Or they go, you know what? My mom doesn't really want me to express my emotion. She wants me to be happy all the time. And they grow up kind of not 
feeling like people really care about their emotions and they grow up kind of keeping it inside feeling like uh in my family we never really people didn't want you to share their emotions because they they weren't really available for that so with the five s's you match intensity you all you, you from what i from what i remember from reading mm-hmm. the book it was match the intensity of the cry with the intensity of the shush and, and so on but with toddlerese it's you said about 30 percent or half of it don't go to their level take it down a notch but you can't be a base level that's right and it's it's actually so astute of you to notice that that similarity there's so many similarities between the baby stuff and the toddler stuff it isn't only for kids who are misbehaving it's not only for babies who have colic it helps all babies and all parents feel more skilled same thing for the toddler stuff and the key concept that's similar between the babies and toddlers is that you're dancing. It's what you said earlier about reading your child's cues. Mm-hmm. You, you don't know how loud to shush or how much to jiggle. So you do some and then you read your baby's cues. Did it work? Did it not work? Then you'll do a little bit more jiggle. I mean, you're probably not going to shush as loud as your baby's crying because they cry as loud as a jet engine. You know? <laughs> yes. So you're going to get... lungs on those little things. <laughs> exactly. So um, so the key concept is really this dance. And if you're doing something and it's not really getting the response, then think to yourself, especially with toddlers, maybe I didn't really hit a chord with him. Maybe he didn't feel like I really got it. And so I'll do it a little bit, you know, stronger and a little bit more, um, you know, uh, clearly that I see how strongly he feels about it. In terms of toddler behavior, you said that 50 to 70 percent of temper tantrums can be eliminated by using toddlerese or at least by attempting to understand Mm -hmm. the inner workings of your child um when it comes to behavior though how much of how your child acts as a you know two three four year old will manifest later on as well is there any sort of correlation there between sort of their outbursts as a toddler and how they are as a preteen or how they are as a teenager or later in life is there any sort of synergy with that um there is and actually even to babies So there's something, you know, we all know the term personality, but when we talk about personality of babies, we use a different term, which is called temperament. Mm. Are kids sensitive? You know, like every little, every time the telephone rings, the baby gets upset because it kind of, what's that? You know, um, are they passionate? Are they, you know, are, will they cry zero to 60 right away? Or did they kind of work up to it slowly? Are they regular? Do they eat and sleep pretty much the same time, poop pretty much the same time, or are they all over the place? There are nine different qualities of temperament. And what's so interesting, even in the first day of life, you can see some kids are more uh, sensitive, some are more passionate, some are more easygoing, and very often that carries through um, into into childhood and, and adulthood even. And not, not surprisingly, very much of that uh, you get from your parents probably 50, 75% you actually get from your parents. So when you have two passionate parents, you know, there's a good chance you're going to have a sensitive, passionate, you know, child. But then the way you handle it during toddlerhood can make a big difference between whether or not you help them learn to be patient if they're if they're little chili peppers and they tend to be, get upset very easily. You can teach breathing exercises. You can even teach meditation to young children. You can teach patience to young children so that they're still going to be passionate, but they learn how to control that tame that horse a little bit. And so the way you parent will allow you to um, kind of allow you to make the best out of the ingredients that you have, you know, in your child. Yeah, the 
Carrie temperament survey, I think is what is what you're referring to. I took it. Oh my gosh. Yes, really? we did. Yes. Um, a pediatrician down by me in Battery Park City uh, said, we have this survey. Would you like to take it? I said, yeah, I'm sure I know him. Mm-hmm. And I was really surprised. My husband and I both took it. And we have very different readings at the time. Uh, mm-hmm. We did it when Matthew was about 10, 11 weeks. We had very different readings on his temperament. And the doctor looked at both both t- tests and said, I'm going to go with the fact that I, I'm not bragging, but he, she said, I'm going to go with the fact that I think Teresa has a better read on the baby because she's with him all day long. Mm-hmm. And he, Matthew showed himself to be a, a bit sensitive. Um, I'm trying to remember the different qualities, but uh, laid back in certain things, but really sort of high needs in others. Um, somebody who did not take well to a schedule, mm-hmm. um, which is true still. Mm-hmm. You know, he does not sleep and uh, he, his nighttime sleep is great, but in, in terms of naps during the day, they are not at the same time every day. Uh, even when we put him down at the same time, he will not fall asleep at the same time. He does. He eats roughly at the same. I mean, it's all sort of jumbled up. So I, it's interesting to see. I can't wait to see when he's older um, to see if there's any sort of correlation. If the way he was at 11 weeks is really the way he manifests as an adult. Sure. Um, well, what's interesting about that is when you say someone's overly sensitive or they they're easily upset um there's kind of a negative connotation to that of course sensitivity is perception and these kids grow up later on to be incredibly perceptive watching the cues around them you know you'll say um look at that pink shirt over there and your child will go no mommy that's fuchsia you know (laughs) that kind of a thing so all of these qualities can be wonderful uh passion you know um irregularity actually can be something that's wonderful later as well. So it's um, the goal. And again, that's really why I was meaning when I said between eight months and five years of age, you've really created a person. You help to maximize the potential of your child and help them to understand their gifts and the and the um, the attributes that, that they were born with and how to best use those in getting around socially. And that's a, it's not that, I mean, it's not like, oh my God, you missed the boat if you didn't know these techniques the first five years. Because it's, you know, obviously as parents, we're constantly, you know, hopefully influencing our children by the way we react to them. But it's especially wonderful opportunity between eight months and five years of age to really have that impact that you want to have. I'm going to ask you some toddler sleep questions. Um, so some, some people ask me, what is the ideal time frame for a toddler to go to sleep? Uh, what should a toddler's routine be in terms especially if they're in the midst of those terrible twos Mm -hmm. and behaviorally speaking when it comes to um the patterns of behavior that they're showing at night a lot i'm hearing that a lot of kids wake up in the middle of the night especially toddlers and they're not able to go back to sleep easily Mm -hmm. or they need a parent with them to fall asleep and stay asleep what can we tell them about how to get through that besides just walking through it (laughs) just doing it so um they're Let's unpack that bit at a time. So we all have sleep cues, right? I mean, you probably have your favorite pillow or your favorite sheets or you like the lights on or lights off or the TV on or the TV off or you like to read before you like a certain temperature in the room. We all have things that we get used to as preparing us for sleep and toddlers are no different than that that's why teddy bears for example i mean no one wants to sleep by themselves i mean it's just not as much fun as sleeping with somebody or sleeping with your best friend who happens to be a teddy bear so transitional objects become very valuable for toddlers white noise is kind of a, a an auditory 
teddy bear, if you will. In other words, when the child gets into light sleep and they hear that familiar sound, it helps them fall back asleep rather than waking up in a quiet room and they're listening to creaks and passing trucks and things like that, which might alert them. So white noise is a really valuable tool for helping all children and adults for that matter, be better sleepers. And um, if you haven't used white noise, you want to use a kind of a rumbly sound. We have free white noise on our website, happiestbaby.com, that you can download. But you want to turn it on an hour before bedtime, a little bit in the background so that their brains get adjusted to it. Mm. So it's not just a, a disruptive thing when they go to sleep that you turn that on. And for toddlers, too? For toddlers, too. Okay. For adults, too. Yeah, okay. for all age. Um, for toddlers... Um, usually going to bed i mean usually it's like 7 seven thirty. i mean they go to bed pretty early that's the normal bedtime but and everyone knows about bedtime routines you read books you brush your teeth you've got all of that but i like the idea that bedtime starts at breakfast which really means that the way you spend the day will influence how they sleep at night so getting outside getting exercise getting fresh air um maybe even doing i like to teach in my book um breathing exercises for kids so they learn how to breathe and regulate themselves and calm down even a three-year-old can learn you know magic breathing to mm. learn how to how to settle themselves um and then of course avoiding things that are stimulating you know caffeinated drinks um uh, cola mountain dew iced tea things like that that might then have an effect later on um when they're going to sleep um, so those are those are a nice bedtime routine is helpful. Massage is a beautiful thing to do with little kids um, to help them. It's that closeness. It's that physical feeling. There are many other um, techniques that are in the happiest um, happiest toddler book. Or there's another book I have which is called the Happiest Baby Guide to Great Sleep, which is on the first five years of life, just about sleep. Wow. And so there are techniques where you can help toddlers be better sleepers without having to do cry it out. Mm -hmm. with the toddlers it's really about teaching them patience and teaching them self-soothing which again none of these things these things work 100 percent, but 80 90 percent, you can get kids even a two three four year old to be a better sleeper without having to just close the door and and kind of isolate them um and um so those are the things that we think about yeah because with the night wakings especially there are some people who said to me uh, I, should I sleep train my child? I'm thinking your kid's almost two years old. At this point, first of all, can't they just get out, get up and walk out of the room and say, well, I'm not staying here, <laughs> you know, and get up and leave and come get you? Sure. And if they do that, then you might have a kid banging on the door. And I think that is a hundred times worse than having a baby cry. Because yeah, they're you know, mobile. <laughs> you know something? It, it, when your kid's waking up all night long, you're in a bad situation no matter what. And so there are some times when you're just exhausted and you're at the end of your limit when sleep training a two-year-old is the right thing to do. And you got to make sure there's nothing dangerous in the room. And sometimes you have to lock the door. You put a child-proof thing on the doorknob so they can't open it. So you got to, I mean, it's, t it's tough raising young kids and you got to cut parents some slack because of sometimes course. you just have to do that. But... You, nobody feels good about having a screaming kid on the other side, you know, banging on the door. Um, you'd rather not be in that situation. And that's why I, there's this technique called twinkle interruptus, which is kind of a funny name, but it's a way of teaching young children patience. And over a week's time, they become more and more patient and they start learning how to be able to soothe themselves at night. And you can avoid that cry it out thing. So that's what I tend to recommend first 
along with the white noise kind of a thing. But uh, listen, sometimes you're just pushed to the that point where you got to do the sleep training. Anything that you think the parents should know um, that do have a toddler, because that's sort of the next thing, right? Um, at least for me, that's where we're headed. Any one piece of information that you wish that parents walking around with kids on the street knew, or because you, you have so you have so much wisdom, you've been doing this for so long. Is there anything that you wish you could run up to that mom and or that dad and be like, "You need to know this, <laughs> whatever this is." Well, there's there are like about ten of those this things in Happiest Toddler, which are very simple techniques that you probably wouldn't think of on your own but that any good elementary school teacher or, or preschool teacher knows that will help move things along in a positive direction. But of all of them, probably the most valuable is this idea about toddlerese and about putting a little bit of emotion in your voice and repeating things. We think that we've said it once, the child should understand it, but actually repetition really, number one, when kids are so upset, they're not even hearing everything you're saying. So you have to repeat it so that they hear it. But number two, repetition makes people really feel heard. Like if you were if you were mad at me, I might say, look, Teresa, I get it. I'm sorry. I'm really, really sorry. I did. I know it upset you. I can see in your face you're upset. And I, I apologize. I mean, I'll tell you what happened. It was a disaster. But I see I put you in a bad situation. So I want you to know I'm really, really sorry. I mean, it just repeated that seven times, which if you were to read that in the book, it would kind of be odd. Would anyone really say that over and over again? But when you hear it, it actually feels pretty okay. Like, yeah. okay, this person gets it. And so with young children, that repetition and using short phrases, don't over-explain it, can be so helpful. Like, you, you, you want it. You want it. You want, you want it now. You say, mine, mine, because you want it now. And even though you're not giving it to your child, you're giving them something so important, which is a consolation prize. Mm -hmm. Your attention, you're the most important person in that child's life. Mm -hmm. So when you give them that quality of attention, even when you don't give them that thing, they, they feel really good. They feel, not that it always works. I mean, sometimes they want it so badly or they're overtired or over hungry right. and you're just going to have to they're pick them robots. up. They're not robots. Yeah, exactly. You're just going to have to take them away from that situation. But the more you acknowledge their ups and downs, their little happiness, their little sadness with that repetition and short phrases, they feel like, wow, my mom gets it. She cares about me. She understands me better than anybody else. And that becomes super valuable in terms of building a sense of confidence and a sense of trust and a sense that your child is loved and understood by you. So what's next for the happiest baby slash Harvey Karp empire? Are we writing a book on happiest husband on the block? Can we write one of those? <laughs> you know, um, right now, my big goal, it, really my the mission of my company is to, is to end infant sleep death. 3,700 babies die every year in the United States in their sleep. Mm. either because they roll over in their beds or because they're brought into bed with their parents or they fall asleep on a sofa with their parents. And I think with SNU, we can, we can, do a, we can really save thousands and thousands of lives. So that's a big thing for me. And postpartum depression. If we can reduce postpartum depression by 25 or 50 percent, that's hundreds of thousands of families affected. That would be fantastic. So my big goal right now is to get SNU out to many, many more people, many, many more houses, get insurance companies supporting it and being able to help families that way. Are you finding some 
give on the insurance companies? Are they looking at the product and telling you that it's... It's too early. Insurance companies require published um, studies. Uh. And so we, as I said, we've got 10 or a dozen studies underway now. So over the next couple of years, when we get those published, then I think insurance companies, assuming that it comes out, you know, showing that we're helpful, insurance companies will um, will support us in this and governments will support us in this and we'll be able to have snooze in, you know, millions of households. That's really the hope. I still think that the husband book, how to train your husband is a great idea. <laughs> okay, we'll work okay. on Okay. <laughs> I was going to say how to get your husband to sleep through the night, but you know what? My husband's sleeping just fine, so he's got that unlocked. People use happiest toddler for their own personal relationships. I'm telling you, my, my publisher, <laughs> when I gave her the first edition of Happiest Toddler, she said, oh my God, this helped me so much this weekend with my boyfriend. So so it's, <laughs> it's adult communication as well. At the end of the day, you're just attempting, as you said, to see the other person's point of view, even if that exactly. person might be pint-sized. Yep, exactly right. Thank you so much. Our second Great conversation, I can't wait to, to fast forward a couple months and then say, Dr. Carp. <laughs> Can you help me with this? It sounds like you're doing great, though. It sounds like you're doing really well. Enjoy the ride, right? Yeah. I mean, it goes too too fast. I can't believe it. Everybody I said this to you, and uh, people said it to me. You never know how fast a year will go by, or six months in my case will go by, until you have a baby. Yep, it's really true. So, But we're sleeping now, so that's the good thing. Thank you. Amen. Appreciate Thanks. it. Pre-Motherhood with Teresa Priolo is part of the Fox 5 Podcast Network. This episode was recorded, edited, mixed, made awesome by Matt Onimus. The executive producers are myself, Matt Onimus, and Imad Ashgar. Byron Harmon is VP of News, and our Vice President and General Manager of Fox 5 is Lou Leone. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions or comments or you just want to say hi, reach out to me on Twitter at Fox 5 Teresa or on Facebook. Teresa Priolo and why. And stay tuned for our next episode. <laughs>